Please take your Bible and turn with me this evening to the uh, Joshua chapter 5, the book of Joshua chapter 5. Our text is verse 12. Joshua chapter 5, verse 12. And the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna any more, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. The title of our sermon is taken from the first words of this text, and the manna ceased. Our gracious Lord has never ever spiritually starved a single one of his children en route to heaven. He has never starved a single one of his children en route to heaven. Rather, he provides all that is necessary for, for life and godliness. He enables the believer to hear that cry uh, that we can taste and see that the Lord is good. We come to taste in his word. We come to taste in the ordinances that he has given to us. We have a taste in the sight of the glory of Christ that is set before us. And in all of these provisions, and in so many more, the people of God find their souls sustained day by day, week by week, year by year, throughout their sojourn through this howling wilderness, only to reach the other side, to reach the other side of the great river, as it were, uh, to come into glory and to find that what the Lord has prepared for them so outstrips and excels and surpasses uh, their wildest imaginations of anything they could have ever conceptualized in this world. But the things in this world give us a taste. They give us a foretaste of what is, is yet to come. So here we are in Joshua chapter 5. You'll remember sort of the large sweep of context in terms of the developments of redemptive history. You have the children of Israel in Egypt, which is a picture uh, of them being uh, in slavery and in bondage to sin. Uh, we have the Exodus, where they're brought out under the leadership of, of Moses and delivered from that tyranny. And it's a picture of the salvation of God's people. They're led into the wilderness and they go through this barren land where they spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Again, a picture of the Christian's pilgrimage through this world. And of course, they're en route to the promised land, the land of Canaan, which is a type of the full inheritance, the eternal and heavenly inheritance of the people of God. So the New Testament helps us to understand uh, the, the spiritual and theological meaning of this progression from Egypt to heaven uh, itself, to the promised land or, or to heaven itself. And so here in Joshua chapter five, we really come to a pivotal point we come to a hinge in the history of uh, Israel, to a, a transforming uh, stage in the development of all that God is, is doing with them, right? They have now come to the cusp. They are now standing just inside the borders of the promised land for which they have long waited. And if you think back, of course, going all the way back to Abraham, for example, and all the, the centuries that have passed in anticipation to where they now find themselves, 
uh, standing. I'm also drawn to this passage for another reason, not only because of its significance in terms of the development of the Old Testament, but also its significance in relationship to our own experience. You know, you think of being on the backside of a communion season, like they have been in Opelika over the last five days, ending just five days ago. There are things here that I think are helpful uh, to, to, for our meditation and reflection on those such occasions as well. And so we're going to give our attention here to Joshua chapter 5 and verse 12. We read that the manna ceased uh, as they entered into the promised land. This was something foretold by Moses going back to Exodus chapter 16, verse 35. Now it is fulfilled. And we're going to note three things. Uh, first of all, we begin with pilgrimage. So we're painting a little of the background here. First of all, pilgrimage. So if you step back for just a second and think of the big picture, right? After the very first Passover, which was celebrated in Egypt, the people entered into the wilderness and the manna began to fall from heaven. Then, after the very first Passover in the land, in the promised land, they've ceased from the wilderness and the manna itself ceases, right? They're no longer, they've left the wilderness and now the manna has ceased. What does that tell us? It tells us that manna was food for pilgrimage. Manna had a unique place and an, a, a unique purpose for sojourners in the wilderness. In fact, we read in, in Exodus and we read in Numbers that as they went into the wilderness, the Lord made them hungry. The Lord made them hungry in order that they might be fed. And so they're sustained in this wilderness, which is not, you know, it's arid ground. They're not staying put long enough to cultivate the land and plant something if they wanted to. But the land itself is rocky and dry and desert-like and so on and really inhospitable for things like agriculture and so on. And yet the Lord is sustaining them through those, those 40 years with this manna. You know, we hear a lot today about superfoods. That's fine, right? We're, we're, it's kind of a, a label for nutrient-dense foods. So foods that have perhaps uh, extraordinary amount of minerals and vitamins and amino acids and omega-3s or whatever else, right? The list of things. Uh, like that. Manna is not a superfood. Manna is a supernatural food. Right? We need to make sure that's clear in our own minds. This is a supernatural food. This is a miracle, a miracle that comes to them from heaven. So we sang earlier in Psalm 78, and this is precisely how the Lord describes it there. In verse 23, uh, though he had commanded the clouds from above and opened the doors of heaven and rained down manna upon them to eat and had given them of the corn of heaven, man did eat angels' food. He sent them meat to the full. So this is supernatural food. This is a miracle that has rained down from heaven. Well, children, what was it like? What was this manna like? What would, have been, what would have it been like to see it, to taste it, to eat it? Well, the Bible tells us some things, doesn't it? It tells us that it was as coriander seed. Your moms may have 
your mama may have that in her, her cabinet, but it was as coriander seed. In one place we're told that it is the co color of bedlium, which is um, kind of a translucent resin that grows on trees. Right? It hardens, it's like a, a stone, can come in different colors. Uh, another place we're told that it, it was white, perhaps like a pearl. And so that's what it looks like. But then we're also told how it tastes. In one place, we're told that it, it had the taste of fresh oil. And in another place, we're told that it was like wafers with honey. And so in other words, manna was actually both sweet and savory. Right? It had both of these, of these elements. It was rich, right? it's like oil, but it's also light, like a wafer with, with honey. And so that's about all we know of the nature of it. They could grind it, they could eat it in various ways, and so on and so forth. But the important thing is this. It's a supernatural food that comes down from heaven. It sustains the people of God day in and out for 40 days over the course of their pilgrimage through the wilderness. And it pointed to Christ. So the Lord Jesus Christ himself takes this up in John 6. And he refers to that manna in the, in the wilderness. And he ties it to himself. He, he, in, in John 6, the manna is referred to as bread from heaven, right? That's the language. It's bread from heaven. And then the Lord says of himself that he is the true bread from heaven. He is the true bread from heaven. And so we're told that Christ is the bread of life, uh, which gives life to the whole world. We're told that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one through whom life is obtained, that indeed we're called to feed upon him, that we must feed upon him by faith in order to have not only natural life, but to have eternal life. And so the manna was a picture of Christ's presence. What, what sustained them? It was Christ that sustained them. Right? Christ is, is pictured in this manna. And so if you think in terms of the development of that in places like John 6 and so on, what we discover is that it's a picture of Christ's presence mediated through divine ordinances, through which the people of God feed upon Christ by faith. And so it's in the context of pilgrimage. Well, the, there is, um, this world is indeed a wilderness, as you know. And, and in this regard, in this context, that includes the fact that it is a hungry place. The world is a spiritually hungry place. Why? Because sin starves us. Sin saps us. It leaves us starving. And left to ourselves, we would, metaphorically speaking, our souls would starve to death. And so our only hope is from what comes outside of this world. We need a provision outside of this howling wilderness. We need something that comes down from heaven. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ is the one who is able to perfectly satisfy his people. Right? He is the one who is perfectly able to sustain the souls of, of his people. Throughout the entire earthly pilgrimage, en route to heaven, the people of God live by faith on the Son of God. We live looking to him, feeding upon him, receiving from him, laying hold of him, hearing him. And to have him 
is to have all that is necessary to sustain us. Why? Because man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. We are like Jeremiah, thy words were found and I did eat them, and they were the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Or you think of Job, who esteemed God's word more than his necessary food. And so we see, first of all, the context is one of pilgrimage, that for Israel going through the howling wilderness, they were sustained with manna. It's a picture of the Christian being sustained in his earthly pilgrimage in this world by feeding upon Christ. But then secondly, we have preparation. So the first note is pilgrimage. Secondly, preparation. So you'll notice here in now the immediate context of Joshua chapter 5, there's a sequence. Uh, the people are circumcised, then they celebrate the Passover, then they eat the food of the land, and then the manna ceases. And so they're circumcised. Now, mind you, uh, all of these were children of unbelievers that were being circumcised. Right? Hebrews makes that abundantly clear. They perished in the, in the wilderness, their parents, because of unbelief. So you can note that. But they're circumcised. And there's an exercise in faith in that. They have to be circumcised in order to celebrate the Passover, of course. But there's also an underlying, uh, another expression of, of faith. What's happening? They're coming into the land in order to engage in a large campaign of conquest. In other words, they're preparing for war, for extensive war. And on the cusp of that, in faith, the men are all circumcised. Think of the vulnerability of that. I mean, go back to Genesis 34. Remember the, Shechemite, uh, the, the Shechemites where you had um, Simeon and Levi who convinced them, right, to, to, that they all had to be um, circumcised in order that they could intermarry with them, right? They were lying, they were deceiving them. So they all were circumcised and they went through and slaughtered them all with ease. And their inability, having just been circumcised, to fight in war. Well, that's where Israel's putting themselves. They're putting themselves in a very vulnerable position in obedience to the Lord and in keeping covenant with him. And then we have the reinstitution of the Passover. This is the third time Israel's celebrated the Passover. First time was way back 40 years ago in Egypt. The second time was at Sinai. And this is now only the third time that the Passover has, uh, has been celebrated. When you think about the Passover, it has a obvious retrospective element to it. So they're thinking back about how the Lord delivered them, redeemed them, brought them out with a strong arm from out from under the bondage and tyranny of Pharaoh and delivered them, brought them, set them free and, and uh, carried them across the Red Sea and so on. So there's that, there's that element. There's also a prospective element as well, because that deliverance from bondage, that redemption is unto passage to the promised land, right? The whole end game is in order that they might be brought to the land that had been promised to them. So the Passover looks both directions uh, in, in that sense. It's with a view entrance into the land. So here they are. You think of the convergence of these different pictures. They, they eat on one day, they celebrate the Passover, they eat the Paschal lamb. Well, there's a picture of Christ, right? He is our Passover. He is our Paschal lamb. So you have a picture of Christ in the eating of the Passover. And then the next day, 
they eat for the first time of the corn of the land. The language here is that they had eaten of the old corn of the land. Now, we're talking about the land that they're standing in, right? We're talking about uh, the land of promise. Old corn probably refers to the fact that it's already been harvested, maybe in the barns where the people have retreated and fled from the border. Israel's entering in, and they're able to go into the storehouses or whatever and pull that food out. Also remember, children, corn, when we think of corn, it's Indian corn that we're talking about in America, right? The yellow stuff that comes on a cob. But the, the older word for corn is really grain. So it could be wheat, it could be barley, it could be rye, etc. Right? So when you see the word corn in Scripture, it's, it's referring to those sorts of, of grains from which you make bread and other things, and so on and so forth. So they eat the, the, the Pascal lamb one day. The second day, they eat the corn of the land. Now, they have to offer the first sheath, first of all, to the Lord, and then they're able to eat the rest. So we're remembering the prescriptions that the Lord's given to us. And then the third day, the manna ceases. And from that day forward, there's no more manna. From there forward, the fruit of the land is, is what will, will feed them. And so here they are in the borders, just you think of it as, as having one foot, if you will, in the land. So they, they, they don't have the full inheritance that the Lord's promised them. I mean, this vast territory has been pledged to them by the Lord. He said, this is what I'm going to give you. You're going to all these valleys and rivers and lakes and mountains and forests and from north to south, east to west, the whole thing's yours. That's not what they have right now. They've just crossed the Jordan River. They're just standing on the border, inside the border of the land, not having their full inheritance yet. But they had been prepared. You say, well, how? Like, like, precisely what does that mean? They had been prepared for a time when the manna would cease and when they would begin to eat the fruit of the land itself. How were they prepared for this? Well, think about it for a second. Because the manna fell every day throughout the months and years that they were there. Over the course of 40 years, manna fell every day, except on every Sabbath. No manna fell from heaven on Sabbath. And so once a week, they experienced no manna falling from heaven. And that was recurring week by week by week by week over the course of those 40 years. And you say, well, well, why exactly was that? Well, you know, the first answer, and it's a correct answer, is the fourth commandment. The Lord wasn't going to have them working and gathering the food and having to do all that is associated with that. So they had to keep the Sabbath day holy. That's the first answer. It's true. But there's more than that. Because it was also preparation and a picture of time, of a time when there would be no more manna falling from heaven. When the manna would keep a, a, a perpetual Sabbath. You say, well, how, how exactly do we know that? You know, are we just, is this just conjecture? Is this just kind of a, an interesting parallel or idea? No. We're told that the Sabbath is a symbol of the heavenly Sabbath to come. So you think of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. There yet awaits a rest, or literally a Sabbath keeping, for the people of God. Right? The Sabbath 
has always been a picture pointing forward to that heavenly inheritance. And so we have that biblically. And the promised land is also a picture of the heavenly inheritance, as Hebrews and other places make abundantly clear. And so these two things converge. They, they were in their weekly cycle experiencing an occasion on the Sabbath day when no manna would fall from heaven, and yet they would still eat because it double portion had been provided the day before. But nonetheless, it was preparing them for a time when the Lord would cease the manna because they were actually in the promised land, which the Sabbath prefigured. And you tie all of this then to John chapter 6, and there where, where the man is specifically brought up, verses 39 to 40, 44, 54, and so on, Jesus is saying, I am the true bread which comes down from heaven. I am the bread of life, and I will raise those on the last day who feed upon me. He is the bread of life that grants eternal life, that will, he will actually resurrect those who believe upon him on the last day. Right? That is a picture of glory, of heaven. He's referring to, to the resurrection unto honor and glory in heaven and so on and so forth. And so there's this preparation that we find as well. And really, that continues, doesn't it? The weekly Sabbath is preparing us still for the heavenly Sabbath, right? The, 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 the weekly Sabbath points back to the creation where God worked for six days, rested on the seventh. Fourth commandment says that explicitly. It also points to the center of history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so that we have a, a weekly memorial of Christ's resurrection. But then thirdly, it points to the end of history because it's a symbol of the heavenly Sabbath that is yet to come, which will be um, unending, perpetual, constant worship for all of eternity, where every day, as it were, is a perpetual Sabbath. And so the weekly Sabbath, even now, is training ground for us. It's training our appetites to wean them from the things of this world and intensify our appetite for the things to come, for heavenly things, for the things of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're saturated the whole day in worship and we cease from all of the other activities that we normally engage in. We're fixing our gaze on what matters most. We're fixing our gaze on Christ and on glory and so on. And in the process, we're building anticipation. We're being prepared for the glory that is to come, for the heavenly Canaan that is yet to come. And so there's this element as well with regards to the manna and it, it ceasing as they come into the promised land, the place of inheritance, the manna ceases. Well, that brings us thirdly then to the promised land itself. So thirdly, the promise the promised land. They're entering the land. To be entering in the land in many ways is coming home, right? They've never lived here. But this is, in, in, a, real, in a real sense, their home. They've been in exile. They've been in bondage. They've been in slavery for, for centuries and so on. But this is the promised home. And as such, it is always described with the promise of abundant food, 
Right? When the Lord describes the promised land, how often is it associated with being a land flowing with milk and honey? And the descriptions that are given in various places, like, like in Deuteronomy 8, when he speaks about having olive yards and, and, and having the vines and vineyards and all of the abundant food that will be provided for them. Even the, even the ten spies admitted this. Right? When they went in, they didn't disagree with Joshua and, and, uh, and Caleb on this point. The ten spies themselves said, it is abundant. The place is phenomenal. Right? It's, it's, it's brimming with remarkable resources and food and all that is delectable and so on. They admitted that much. But in their unbelief said, we can never have it. We can't take it. Then you have people like Korah, and Korah denies it, right? Korah is saying, I wish we had what we had back in the world. I wish we had what we had back in Egypt with all of the, the great stuff back there. You brought us into this wilderness to kill us. Right? That was the language of, of Korah. But no, it's a place of, of abundance. It's reminiscent of Adam in the garden where the Lord says, look in every direction. Do you see all of this? All, the, all these trees, fruit-bearing trees, it's all yours. You can feast to your heart's delight. All of it is food for you, except for the one tree. You're not to touch the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. And so it's a land, the, the promised land was a land of opulence. Rocks dripping with honey. Streams, as it were, flowing with, with milk. And so they come into the land and they eat the corn of the land. The self-same day, we're told, they eat of this. In other words, they're eager. They're eager to dive in to what the Lord's promised them. They're eager to enjoy it. Well, how does this, you know, what, what is this saying? I mean, beyond the, 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 the literal historical fulfillment and the facts that are associated with it, this promised land is a picture of heaven. And so all of the diversity and the lushness and the bounty is picturing the glories, the, the, the joy, the variety, the plenty of heaven itself, right? When we come to Revelation, it's described in terms of a tree of life, which bears its fruit every month. In other words, it is continuously bearing fruit for the people of God. The, the leaves are for the healing of the nations and so on. So it's a picture of the glories of, of heaven. Well, the manna ceased. Gone. Never to be seen again. Well, it's true. It's true that the manna ceased, as the passage says. And it's true that it will not be seen again. But it's not entirely true that it's gone. Because you'll remember that the Lord had commanded that they take an omer full of manna, put it in a pot, and stick that pot in the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant goes with them into the land. There's manna in the Ark, which no one can see, but it's still there. Right? It's not entirely gone. There's still some manna that is, that is present. What is the ark, children? It's a picture of the throne of God. 
Right? We're told that explicitly. It's described as the throne of God. And we turn then to the New Testament scriptures. And in Revelation chapter 2, we read in verse 17, And he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. And will give him a white stone. Those who overcome, the Lord Christ will give to eat of, of the hidden manna. And the Lord describes then heaven, you know, what, it's, what, what it is in terms of the figures that are presented to us. So you think, for example, in Revelation chapter 7, at the end of verse 16, they shall hunger no more. Neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne, prefigured as the ark earlier, shall, lead, uh, shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. They shall hunger no more. Why? Because the one Christ who is in the midst of the, of the throne, shall feed them. There's no more hunger. No more hunger for the people of God. Once they get to glory, once they get to heaven, there's no more physical hunger. Of course, you have a resurrected body. But there's no more spiritual hunger in the sense that this sin-cursed world produces it. In the sense that they are fed by the lamb in the midst of the throne to their full satisfaction. So in this world, God gives to us ordinances. He gives us the word. He gives us gospel ordinances. He gives us the supper and baptism and prayer and, and all of these other things. And they are like spiritual manna. They are the manna, right, that we, that we enjoy. Christ, we are feeding upon Christ himself in the ordinances that he gives to us. But those ordinances cease in the heavenly Canaan. They cease when we come to glory. There's, there's no longer preaching and there's no longer the Lord's Supper and there's no longer baptism and, and so on inside heaven. Remember what Jesus says when speaking of the Lord's Supper? Christ says to celebrate the Lord's Supper till I come. Till I come. Right, when the, the signs and seals will, will be set aside for the, the fullness of all that they signified and the coming glory of, of the Lord's people. The manna ceased at the entrance into the promised land. And in heaven, the Lord's people will no longer need to be sustained as sojourners. Will no longer need all of that that, that we needed here in terms of our earthly pilgrimages, aliens and foreigners in a, in a very strange land. But rather, we will enjoy the bounty of Christ and of his glory forever in the immediate presence of the king. No longer looking, as it were, through a glass. No longer looking through the mirror of his word and beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in this mirror. No longer looking through the signs and seals of the sacraments, but actually beholding him face to face. Resurrected eyes looking upon the glorified humanity of Jesus Christ.
glorified ears, hearing, resurrected ears, hearing the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and as it were, drinking in, feeding upon the sight of that glory to the exquisite delight and intense joy of our souls, our whole persons, forever and ever. There'll be no more hunger because there'll be no more sin. And yet, we will be continually fed. Very different. The Lord, when he sent Israel into the wilderness, made them hungry to feed them. We come to heaven, there is no hunger, but he continually feeds us from the throne. He continues to nourish us. In other words, it's a picture of being satiated. It's a picture of being fully satisfied, of being perfectly content. And yet the Lord continuing to pour more and more bounty on us. And all of this is pictured in the, in the promised land. And the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna anymore, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. And from then on, this is the picture for the Christian. We come to the word of God in our daily reading. We come to communion seasons. We come to the sacrament of baptism. We sit under the preaching of the Lord's word. And Christ is coming to us from, he is, he is falling upon us as it were, like manna from heaven in order to sustain and strengthen us. And it is sweet to the taste and it is nourishing to the soul. And it is, it is, um, satisfying to our spiritual appetites and it gives us the strength we need and the spiritual energy that we need and the wisdom and the grace and everything else that comes with it. But there's a day coming when all of this will be set aside, when the manna will cease. I mean, we think in terms of a person dies. You can say at that point, the manna has ceased. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the manna has ceased. These things which have served us so incredibly well will be set aside to behold the glory of the Lord, to enter into the full inheritance. Now we have a foretaste of the inheritance. We have a portion of the inheritance. But then we will have the entirety in all of its fullness. And so our eyes are lifted up to behold again the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gracious dealings with us in leading his believing people to glory. Let's stand for prayer. Almighty God in heaven, we are thankful that we can come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that true bread that came down from heaven the bread of life upon which poor needy sinners can feed by faith and who will know Christ to raise them unto glory on the last day. Lord, we are thankful for the promised land which is yet to come, the place that Christ has gone to prepare for us. We're thankful for all of the sustenance and strength given in this earthly pilgrimage. We who are made to starve because of sin are likewise made to be satisfied and full by divine grace. O oh Lord, give to us, we ask, an increased anticipation that our hearts might long for that home to come when all of these things will be set aside 
and where Christ will be all in all. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Mm -hmm.